Okay. Can you hear me now? Very good. I'll just stick this in my pocket. Put water here. Good to be with you, the Village Church. Okay. See if I can get my act together here. We're going to be, um, I'm going to be preaching from Luke 18, 9 through 14. But, I don't know if that's overhead or not. It's going to be overhead? No, overhead. Okay. Well, this is a parable uh, of, of, of that one among the many parables that Jesus uh, tells us. But I'm going to precede it. There's a parable that comes before the parable that we're going to focus on today. So I'm going to start with that one, and then I'm going to read both of them. So I'm going to start uh, with uh, the parable of the persistent widow, uh, which is in um, chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, beginning in the first verse. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And our scripture He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, our God and our King, we thank you for your word, which is able to edify us, which is able to clarify reality for us, which is able to define our purpose and our direction, and which clearly tells us why we are here, that you are God, you are our King, that you sent your one and only Son, that we might have life through him. We are fallen, we have sinned, But you have redeemed us for your glory, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, today that you would use this parable to continue to teach us why we are here and where we are going. And what we long to see is Jesus, our Lord, face to face. It's in his precious name 
that I pray. Amen. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. So begins one of Jesus' most well-known parables. Anybody ever hear this parable before about the tax collector? And Okay, okay, it's up there with the parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son. Jesus tells this parable right after the parable about the persistent widow, you remember? Which I just read. That parable starts off, he told them a parable into the effect that we always ought to pray and not lose heart. So he's talking about prayer there, and then he ends that parable by saying, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So he talks about a persistent widow, and then he talks about kind of faith that when the Son of Man comes, he'll find. And it is as if he's giving an example of the kind of faith that he wants to see when he gives the second parable. So the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector illustrates what God wants to see. Who is Jesus telling this parable to? Our text tells us that the parable was going to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that was his audience. Jesus is actually telling this parable to the Pharisees who trusted in themselves and treated others with contempt. The prayer that Jesus puts in the mouth of this Pharisee would not have been that unusual. Here's a prayer of of of, of, a, of a rabbi from the time 70 A.D. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. it. Goes, I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the temple, the house of learning. Thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in secret corners. For I rise early and they rise early. But I rise early for the word of Torah and they ride for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor. But I labor and receive a reward. And they labor and they do not receive a reward. I run and they run. But I run to life of the future. And they run to the pit of destruction. So it would not have been that unusual a prayer. Jesus tells this parable as a warning about the prevailing tendency of the people of their time and even in our time to be self-righteous. <clears throat> when we hear this parable today, we automatically know that the Pharisee is the bad guy. But when Jesus told this parable, they would not have been thinking about the Pharisee as the bad guy. See, the Pharisees, they, they were the religious folk of their time. They were the, 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 the cream. They, they, they were the Puritans of their time. They pledged themselves to obey Moses' law to the T. And even what you may term the, 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 the hedge law. That, that is laws that they wanted to keep to make sure that they didn't break the real laws. The heads laws were created to make sure that they were in line. And they separated themselves, thinking themselves better than others because they kept the law. They were few in numbers. Perhaps about 1% of the population were the Pharisees. And they were looked up to because they were the elite. They were the religious group. And they were honored and respected 
among their people. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, if you remember. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And so the parable begins with the Pharisee. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like others, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all I get. See, the Pharisee believes himself to be better than the average Joe. First, he's standing by himself away from the others. He doesn't want to be contaminated by them. The NIV reads, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. The Pharisee's prayer starts off so well. He says, I thank you, God. And it's always good to start a prayer with thanksgiving. And if this Pharisee had stopped there, it would have been a great prayer. But then he opens his mouth. And his prayer continued, quickly degenerates. He says, I thank you that I am not like other men. He begins to pray about his relative goodness, comparing himself to others. He feels himself better than other people. He goes on to give God examples of his goodness. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. You see, he's not an extortioner like the tax collector. He's not unjust like the tax collector. He goes on to say he's not an adulterer. And I don't know what that has to do with the tax collector. He continues to impress God with what he has done. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe of all that I get. You know, fasting was only required once a year on the Day of Atonement. But he was fasting twice a week. 104 times, I believe, that comes out to. He was really obeying the law. He tithed not just his income, but he was tithing his mints and his herbs and everything just to show how spiritual he was. Externally, this is a good guy. You want him to come to your church. You make him an elder or a deacon. And on the outside, he has it all together. This Pharisee is a combination of Billy Graham and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King all rolled up into one. (laughs) By contrast, think about the most despised person that you can think of. You see, Jesus contrasts the most respected religious person of his day with the most despised person, a tax collector. Now, although we may not like paying taxes, we generally don't despise the IRS. So, a a, a closer equivalent would be, think of somebody who extorts people. Think about a CEO who's cooking the books. Think about what the public felt about Bernie Madoff when it was discovered what he had been doing. I've been watching a series lately called American Greed. I don't know if anybody has watched that, but when you see how greedy people get in, 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 in their behavior, you, you begin to despise them by the end, end of the program. Think, think in those terms when you think about the tax collectors. They were hated because they worked for the Roman government, their oppressors, the enemies, a foreign occupier. They were allowed to collect taxes for Rome, and anything that they got beyond what was asked for was th- their own. 
And so you can imagine something about us that causes us to be greedy. And they wanted to get as much as they could, so they extorted people. And they cheated. And they robbed their own people. They were despised by their Jewish brothers who considered them the scum of the earth. The tax collectors, on the other hand, goes up to pray. A tax collector would not have ordinarily gone up the temple to pray. But it tells us in verse 13 that the tax collector, standing up by himself, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Contrast the Pharisee, the tax collector didn't even consider himself worthy to be in the temple. He stands at a distance, away from others. He doesn't even think himself good enough. He's ashamed before God. He beats his breath, showing how horrible he felt. He begs God to be merciful to him, a sinner. His prayers are very simple. God, be merciful me, a sinner. And in the original language, the definite article is used. And so he's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, something had to happen to this Pharisee for him to be able to pray like that. He is deeply convicted of his sin. There's two amazing things about this tax collector's prayer. One is that he recognized himself as a sinner. Not just a sinner, but the worst of sinners. The other amazing thing about this prayer is that somehow he had recognized that God had made a provision for sinners. He was aware that God had dealt with sin. You see, the tax collector asks God to be merciful, but he doesn't merely ask for mercy. He uses an unusual word. Remember, Jesus is telling this parable, so Jesus is using the word. See, the usual word for mercy would be to have great concern, to have pity, to have compassion. But the word that Jesus uses means to cause to be favorably inclined. The word, the big theological word is propitiate. Propitiation is more than just compassion or pity. To propitiate means to be in good favor with someone. If I offend you, if I offend my wife and I want to make up for it, I might bring her a gift. I might bring her flowers. Because I not only want her to forgive me, but I want us to be good again. I want to say, oh, are we good? So that's, that's propitiation. And that's essentially what this tax collector is asking for. The tax collector, this low life, was coming to God and asking God to not just forgive me for the things I've done, but look at me in favor. He's not just asking for forgiveness. Be favorably disposed? What an incredible ask. How could he ask for such a thing? He asks because he's aware of what God provides. Again, we go back to that word that he used for forgiveness. 
And the noun form of that word that Jesus uses could be translated into mercy seat. You could translate the phrase, but it would be bad English. God be mercy seated to me. What? You see, the tax collector is asking for mercy on the basis of a provision that God provides on the day of atonement. And if you want to learn about the those provisions, if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus, and most of us have not, I would suggest you go back to Leviticus 16 and look at what God provides on the Day of Atonement. See, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the temple, into the Holy of Holies with blood, and it would be the blood of a bull to cover his own sin and the blood of a goat to cover the sins of the people. And he would take this blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was a book. It was the Ten Commandments. And essentially, when he sprinkled the blood, he was saying, instead of God, of looking at at your judgment, at the Ten Commandments, look at the blood and forgive your people. The tax collector is asking God to have mercy on him based on the day of atonement. He's asking God to look at the blood, look at the sacrifice, and don't look at me. Now, of course, Jesus is telling the parable. So Jesus is reading himself in the parable. Jesus knows all about the day of atonement, right? He created it. He's the temple. He's the holy. He knows about the holy of holies. He knows about the sprinkle of blood. And everything Jesus is talking about this for this tax collector is pointing to himself. Because it's through the blood of Jesus that our sins are taken away. And so when the tax collector prays, God, be merciful to me. He's asking for mercy based on God's atoning provision. And in the Old Testament, that was the sacrifice in the day. Of atonement. In our day, our sacrifice is Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sins are forgiven. Even the tax collector's sins are forgiven on the basis of Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus ends the parable by telling us that this man goes to his house justified rather than the other. Do you know what it means to be justified? It means to be declared righteous by God. It means that God does not just forgive you, but he actually likes you. I appreciate the fact that you said that this morning, that God actually likes us. It's more than just forgiveness, more than just tolerating. God takes delight in us. He sings over us. I find it hard to believe that God would sing over me. Justification is so good. Forgiveness is wonderful, but justification is even better. With justification, we're actually in right standing with God. Jesus' record is put on our record. Our sins were placed on him, and his righteousness, his goodness was placed on our record. So what does all this mean for us today? It's nice theory, nice intellectual stuff, and we go, hmm Interesting. I, I, I want to give us some application for us today. My three points of application are, 
There is a Pharisee inside of all of us. There's a tax collector there too. But thanks be to God, we have a God who justifies. First of all, there's a Pharisee inside all of us. See, we've learned to paint a pretty negative picture of Pharisees, making it really hard for us to see the Pharisee that's inside of us. See, the original lang- the, the, the original audience would not have had the same problem because they understood what the Pharisees were. We don't. This parable is a contrast between two kinds of people, the self-righteous Pharisee and the humble tax collector, the, 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 the tax collector who sees his sin. But we have trouble with that. One of our biggest problems with this parable is that we can't identify with the Pharisee because we know the Pharisee is the bad guy. We know what Jesus thinks of Pharisees. We know that this prayer is self-centered. We know that we're not supposed to pray this way. And so we tend not to identify with the Pharisee which makes it difficult for us to see the Pharisee inside of us. So I want to make it a little easier for you to see the Pharisee inside of you. Uh, uh, I I want to modernize this parable and give you some modern illustrations. And you know how in some television programs they tell you, you know, what you may see might make some of you uncomfortable. So I make the same disclaimer as I give you a modern rendition of this parable. Two Christians go to church and sat on the same pew. One a younger, dressed-down Christian, the other an older, dressed-up Christian. As the two men sat on the same pew, the younger, dressed-down Christian prayed, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other Christians, Christ followers, ritualistic, traditional, or even like this guy sitting on the other end. I'm authentic. I'm sold out for you. I don't put on a facade by dressing up to worship you. But the older, dressed up Christian quietly prayed to himself, God, I'm not perfect. I have failed thee in your steadfast love. Have mercy on me. How about this one? Two moms take their children to the park to play. One a homeschooling mom and the other a public school mom. As the two women watch their children together, the homeschool mom prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other women, selfish, unfit mothers, poor homekeepers, or even like this woman who ships her child off the public school. I raise my kids. I protect them from worldly influence, and I assure that my kids have a godly Bible-based education. But the public school mom humbly prayed, God, I thank you for my children. And I pray that you would raise, help me raise them in a godly fashion. Have you had enough? <laughs> Two men stop at a red light. <laughs> one an older, one in an older model, high mileage Chevy truck, the other in a brand new Ford F. 250 super duper crew cab truck. As the two men waited for the light to turn green, the man in the older model high mileage truck prayed to him, so God, I thank you that I am not like other men, materialistic, covetous, 
showing off, even like this man in the lane beside me. I work hard to earn what I got. I never wanted to be rich, and I don't act like I'm better than anyone else. But the man in the new truck humbly prayed, God, I thank you that I that you have richly blessed me with what I have. I don't deserve it. Comes in all shapes and sizes how we put ourselves in the position of the Pharisee and not see ourselves as such. It is often hard to see the Pharisee inside of us. But if you want to expose the Pharisee, I would encourage you to watch how you use your tongue. Watch how you tend to judge people. Watch how we tend to gossip. Gossip is so much fun. Why is gossip so much fun? Why is it so easy to be critical of other people? See, that's the Pharisee. See, the Pharisee was looking down on everyone else. It's, it's, it's kind of how we operate in, in, in our fallen state. We tend to look down. We tend to gossip. We tend to boast. We tend to complain. Anybody complain about life? It's the Pharisee. I'm sorry. There's a Pharisee inside of all of us. But there's a tax collector there too. As I said, the tax collectors were no good, money-grubbing, cheating, roaming collaborators. Who wants to identify with a tax collector? People would cross the streets rather than being on the same side of the street with a tax collector. It is very hard to identify with a tax collector. Now, if you thought it was hard to identify with the Pharisees, I think that is impossible, quite frankly, to identify with a really big sinner. Because I think about David and Bathsheba. I think about what David did when he committed sin with Bathsheba. Not even only does he take another man's wife, but he tries to cover it up by bringing her her husband in and, and tried to put it on him. And but 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 Uriah is too noble, and he gets Uriah drunk, and Uriah still won't go to his his wife. And and he has his it's one of his mighty men. He has one of his friends killed in battle. The amazing thing is that David doesn't realize it. Psalm, Psalm 32 tells us that, David says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of day. He still didn't get it. So even when God put pressure on him, he didn't get it. Now, he does eventually does get it because it tells us in Psalm 32 that when I acknowledge my sin to you, and failed to cover him up, he confessed. But what did it take for David to finally get it? God had to send Nathan with a story about a rich landowner and a poor landowner with a little ewe lamb. He had one little lamb. The rich only had, had, had thousands of, 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 of lambs. And how the rich landowner went to this poor little Guy with one, he's, I mean, the story is so elaborate. He talks about sleeping with the lamb and it was his, his pet. And he takes that pet and David is indignant. That man deserves to die. And Nathan says, thou art the man. And David is convicted. 
You can't see your own stuff. It's amazing how easy it is to find stuff in other people, isn't it? Isn't it why Jesus tells us, asks the question, why do you notice the speck in others' eyes? And you don't know the, you don't notice the plank that's in your own eye. It is so hard to see the plank, but it's so easy to see the faults in other people. If you want to see the tax collector, if you want to see that plank, you need a Nathan. Ask God to send you a Nathan. It's usually your spouse. <laughs> and you don't want to hear it. I know so many pastors who in the pulpit talk about how big a sinner they are. But you better not tell them that they are. Because they be, will become defensive. And so you gotta kinda pull a Nathan. You gotta tell them a story. <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta come alongside. You gotta be gentle. We don't like to see our sin. It's painful. And so we're constantly justifying ourselves. We're kind of, we're constantly saying, I'm not that bad. I'm okay. Yeah, I'm a sinner. But I don't understand how the Apostle Paul can call himself the worst of sinners. I'm bad, but he's worse. We love relative badness, don't we? There's a Pharisee inside all of us. There's a tax collector there too. But thanks be to God, we have a God who justifies. It was my freshman year in college. I was taking chemistry for the first time. I found the course rather difficult. And I remember getting a 60 on the first exam. But to my surprise, when I got my paper back, I got a C. I said, a C? I, I, I don't understand. So I spoke to another student. And I said, how come I got a C? He said, I got a C too. The teacher grades on a curve. I said, oh, I didn't understand the curve. I'd been in, you know, I was a freshman in college. I didn't know anything about the curve. You know, so I'm learning about the curve for the first time. But then I had another class, analytic geometry, and I didn't do well in that either. And I remember getting a 60 on that exam. And I remember getting my exam back. And I remember looking at the exam and it said F. And I said, what? And I went to the teacher in a storm and I said, why did I get an F? She said, because you got a 60. I said, what about the curve? She said, I don't grade on a curve. My brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you today that God does not grade on a curve. God expects perfection. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. But only one of them goes back home justified. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by God's grace through his redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. The Pharisee justifies himself while the tax collector falls on the mercy of the court. One assumed that God was grading on a curve and the other knew he had failed miserably. One thought he was better than the other. The other saw him as the worst of sinners. Jesus said the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom ahead of you. Why? Because they recognize themselves as sinners. 
Have you ever heard of a curve buster? The teacher's grading on a curve, and then somebody comes in there. Everybody's getting 50s and 60s, and somebody comes in there and gets 100%, and you really hate them. You see, Jesus is our curve buster. He got 100%. And the good news is that if you believe in him, he takes that 100%, and he puts that in your record. And you have a perfect grade, because Jesus is our righteousness. In God's court, we have all failed. Most people know they're not perfect, but they think they're better than other people. And we begin to think in this relativistic term instead of thinking in the absolute term that we have a sovereign God who is perfect and we want all of our reliance for our righteousness and our goodness to be in him. Not in the stuff that we do. Our grade is perfect through the one who is perfect. All have failed and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You know, I used to read James uh, James 4, 7, and I'd be reading along. I'd be happy. It says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And you're swinging. It's like, oh, that's so sweet. But then it follows with this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you double my... I don't... Who's he talking to? <laughs> you know, Jesus just casually called us. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts, you know, you, you know you're evil. That's what we have a hard time with. We just don't... We're, we're, it makes us uncomfortable. But the reality is that until we rely on that, we will not experience the great reality that we are righteous in Christ. We will continue to try to work for our own righteousness. I'm good, I'm good. We'll struggle. We'll cry because we feel that we're imperfect. You are! (laughs) That's the good news. It's the only time that the gospel is going to be good news until we realize our bad news. My friend Jack Miller used to say, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. <laughs> but the good news is that you are righteous in Jesus Christ. We're sinners, but we're saved because of the mighty work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a humbling thing to ask for mercy We naturally want to exalt ourselves. But Jesus ends the parable with these words. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We need to be praying that God would humble us. Humility is not natural. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to humble us. That we might go to our Lord and our Savior, and be filled with the fullness that He has to offer us through His grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father and our God and our King, we thank You and we praise You for all that we have and all that we are in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You would help us to understand these words, the words of this parable, the words of your book that you have given us 
from Genesis to Revelation to help us, help us to understand why we are here, where we are going, what our Lord has done for us through Jesus Christ. Enable us to pray, to pray be filled with the Spirit, to, to pray uh, the, the way we should pray, the, 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 the persistent widow, to pray uh, like the tax collector, uh, realizing that we are sinners. Help us not to be ashamed. Help us to be, help us to, to, to find our, our, our righteousness in Christ. Help us not to be ashamed of the good news of the gospel. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for in it was the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. I pray that that would be our posture. posture. I pray that you would deliver us from ourselves and enable us to live in the joy of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we look forward to seeing one day face to face. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.